If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of James, chapter 2. James chapter 2, and you see the title of the sermon on the screen. You'll also find in your worship guide or bulletin, there's, a, there's an insert there so you can follow along. That has an outline, uh, a participatory outline, I might add, so there'll be a couple of blanks that you can fill in uh, this morning as we go along through, uh, through our time together in the Word. And so uh, as we approach James chapter 2, the title of the message this morning is Saving Faith is a Serving Faith. Saving Faith is a serving faith. In other words, I, I think this is really the, uh, the, the heartbeat of what James is, is uh, really challenging the church with as he writes to uh, the church scattered abroad or the dispersed people of God. He's encouraging them, yet challenging them, even admonishing them. And this morning, perhaps this is a bit of an admonishing passage that he, he admonishes the congregation, but at the same time, he's exhorting the people as they would read this letter and understand what James is saying. So in verses 14 through 26, that'll be our text this morning. So let us begin reading. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons believe also and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would remove our defenses. I pray, God, that you would Help us to just be transparent in your presence and acknowledge that we are transparent in your presence. Oh, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us to receive your word and to hear, um, to look upon it, to apply our lives to it, Father, to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit leading and prompting in us this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us the wonderful truth and counsel of your word and and reveal to us, Holy Spirit, how this should impact and how we are to to live our lives because of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
for James as he approaches this portion in, in the epistle in verse 14. It seems to me that there are some things that are happening in the midst of the church that we become aware of. And even if we kind of take a step back and look at the, the macrocosm, maybe or the, the, the large picture of the book of James, we begin to see some things that are happening in the midst of the church that are somewhat unsettling. We see it beginning in chapter 1, and I won't take time to just revisit everything, but there, there seems to at least be some form of nominal Christianity that has kind of creeped into the midst of the body. And by nominal Christianity, we mean Christians in name only. Those who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I have faith, yet their lives show no indication, no sign of this faith that they profess, at least not faith in this life-transforming God. And so it's at this point in the, in the epistle where he really kind of confronts that head-on, and this is a tough passage. In fact, some have, have read this passage and said, this just can't be, it cannot coincide with what Paul says in Romans, because he's saying faith is justified by works, and Paul says that we're justified by faith alone through grace and not of works in Ephesians and, and in Romans chapter 4. And so how are we to understand what James is saying? This morning it's my prayer that we understand simply this, that what James is saying is that true saving faith is true serving faith. That is, a faith that is true and real is a faith that is lived out through serving, through engaging and being involved. It is lived out, and he gives us some examples that we'll see in a moment. But just think for a moment on the, the big scale of, of the, the epistle of James. The church is struggling with being allured and seduced by worldly living, uh, by the culture in which they live perhaps. James calls them double-minded in, in chapter 1. He, they, they were blaming God or accusing God for the temptations that they were experiencing and walking through when really it was a result of, of perhaps their own drifting and getting far from God. He walks through in chapter 1 of the, the, the progression from, uh, from lust to sin or from temptation to sin. They become a fellowship that's really filled with critical spirits and, and sharp tongues and they, they're no longer exer- exercising equity uh, and impartialness toward one another. Instead, they've become very partial and they've begun secluding. That was chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 3 reveals that their hearts are filled with bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Chapter 2, they're not carrying out the royal law, loving one neighbor, one's neighbor as one's self, considering others as better than themselves. Chapter 3, their tongues are full of deadly poison. They've befriended the world. Chapter 4, they've become consumed with the pursuit of their own pleasures for their own satisfaction, and they are misusing their riches for their own pleasures at the unjust expense of the poor among them and exploiting the poor. Chapter 5. We might look at that and kind of start adding things together and say, you sure this was the church? (laughs) There was some pretty tough things that James is, is counter, encountering in, in this letter to the church. And these are all situations that he gives that are very likely based upon where they're at and, and what they're doing as a congregation, as a body. 
they've become a church that's riddled with partiality. And because of their disregard for God's way, factions have entered into their fellowship and into their church. And this passage really offers us this morning the best argument that James can muster against nominal Christianity. And so saving faith is a serving faith. And the first thing I think we need to see in verse 14 is that saving faith calls or leads. Saving faith leads to action. Saving faith leads to action. Look at what he says in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So what is at stake here is genuine saving faith. That's what James is questioning on behalf of this community, this body of believers, the church. Are these multiple churches meeting in house churches that are scattered abroad? What is at stake is saving faith. What then is saving faith? What use is it, he says, my brethren, speaking to the church, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The faith that says, I have faith, but is not lived out by works, can that faith save him? That is the question that is on the table this morning for James, for us. Can this faith that does not have works, can it save a person? And so we ask the question, what is saving faith? And I think as we walk through the New Testament, we would see that saving faith is faith that generates or transforms one's life. It, it births new. We see this throughout the New Testament. From John the Baptist coming, I mean, uh, from Nicodemus coming to, to Jesus in the garden, uh, coming and saying, Lord, what must I do to be saved? How can one be born again? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb? And Jesus responds. We see throughout, uh, throughout the gospel, throughout the New Testament, we see that salvation comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and it births new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says this as well. Therefore, all things are made new. If anyone is a new creature in Christ, the old is gone. Behold, all things are made new, right? It's a, a new creation. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is when we are born again. There is a transformation in the life of a person. Now, it might not be always be as radical as what happens for the Apostle Paul, right? Or rarely, maybe I should say it's rarely as radical as what happens for the Apostle Paul when he, he sees the bright light and, and the Lord Jesus confronts him in his sin. But there is a transformation that happens in one's life where when we are, come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is given as a deposit in our life and this is faith in Jesus Christ. Sin is repented of and turned away from and the old things are then gone and behold, all things are now made new. And so saving faith in Jesus Christ means a transformed lifestyle. In fact, James claims a faith leading to salvation is evidenced through good works. He claims it right here, even from verse 14. And certainly in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, verse 17, is dead, being by itself. But in verse 14, what use is it then, my brethren, if someone comes and says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the reality of this faith is 
one that has been transformed by the grace of God in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 20, verse 21, excuse me, he says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, right, which is able to save your souls. This word that is implanted into our lives is that which is able to save your souls. And then in verse 22, he follows that up closely with this instruction. But prove yourselves doers of the word, right? Not only hearers or merely hearers who delude themselves. That is to say, there is a connection between hearing God's word, God's word being planted in our lives, and then the fleshing out or the living out of God's word practically in our lives. And so saving faith calls to action. Well, notice in verse 14, he begins by saying, what use is it, my brethren, What use is it if someone claims and says, it's this profession, I have faith. But verse 15 quickly follows up. If this person says and claims they have faith in God, they have faith that Jesus Christ has saved them is the claim here. But his or her life doesn't consist of any works that are consistent with this claim and this transforming, saving grace. Then James asks, can that faith really save him? And that is what we see in verses 15 and 16. He gives us an illustration of what that looks like. So the person says, I have faith, right? We, we follow, we're there. And then in verse 15, but if a brother, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that, he says. Notice that bracket there from verse 14 and verse 16. He begins, what use is that? Ends with what use is that in verse 16. Here's the the point that he's making, the illustration. If a brother or sister is in your midst, they... They are there, number one, this is saying that this is kind of an intra-community thing. This is happening within the body of Christ. And if that brother or sister comes and they are in need of food, they lack food and are physically hungry, and they're in need of clothing, they lack clothing, they are physically naked or without clothing. They, they don't have the outer garment maybe to keep them warm at night, literally is what the passage probably speaks about. And so they come and they are in great need. And then the point is in verses 15 and 16, they come to you in great need, but then you say to them just, well, be warmed and be filled, go. In other words, it's this statement of blessing basically on their life that says, well, just go and be, be warmed and be filled. And in Judges, this statement is, is seen whenever in the Old Testament, it's seen several times, but one place it's seen in the Old Testament is uh, Judges 18.6. And the priest said to them, go in peace, the journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. 1 Samuel 1.17, the connection as well, then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. The language is the same here in this passage in the salutation that the brother or sister sends the needy one off in. Go in peace, basically. Be warmed and be filled. But misses really the whole point. 
And at first, when I was reading through this passage and, and meditating on it early in the week, I, I began to think, you know, that this is clearly an example of something happening within the body. I mean, that, that's what he's talking about. If a brother or sister comes to you and they're in need, and this, this means that this person is a, a member of the fellowship and of the congregation. Man, how cold could this congregation be that, that one of their own would come to them and say that they had a need, yet they would just send them away callously with some trite phrase or, or some trite blessing? I began thinking about it. Well, then what implication might that have on, on us as a body as we seek to carry out and do ministry uh, in the city? I mean, if, if this is what's happening in the body, you know, this is what's being addressed and how do then do they, they treat those from the outside who come in? I mean, what, what are they doing to those who are, who are, who are hungry and, and who need clothing from the outside? And then I begin to realize that, you know, this goes against every, even for the Jew, it goes against their laws of charity. They would not see somebody hungry and naked and then refuse them. That would... That would be against what they would do. And the, the whole point, the very point that James is making with this ridiculous example is that it is a ridiculous example. This would not happen. This wouldn't happen in our fellowship, would it? Somebody come in who was hungry and they make that need known to you? Somebody come in and they say, listen, these are the only clothes that I have and they make that need known? And then would you dismiss them and say... Be warm and be filled. Go. Would, would that happen? I, I don't think that would happen in the midst of the, the church. Certainly not here. And I, I don't think that it would happen in the midst of the church as James is challenging them. Rather, the point is, while this illustration is a ridiculous illustration that would not happen a ridiculous hypothetical the point that James is really trying to drive home is that faith that has no works is equally ridiculous a person that claims they have faith but there are no works in their life that's an equally ridiculous assertion Listen, to assert that a brother or sister would come in here and need something and we would have the means to make it happen and to meet that need, yet we would say just go be filled and give them some pleasantry, first off, we would be denying what God is calling us to do as the body of Christ, right? But to say that that would happen, that's, it's, it's ridiculous. In the same way, James is saying, it's ridiculous for a person to claim they have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet have no works in their life that point back to the saving faith. Why? Because saving faith transforms a person. Makes a difference in our lives. Listen, when the grace of Jesus Christ has, has come into you and you have received the mercy of God... That's what we talked about this morning in Sunday School in Romans, right? Propitiation. It's not the canceling of sin. It is the payment of sin. Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. And because of that, His righteousness is imputed to the believer. And because of that righteousness, we are then declared just in God's presence. 
And so James is not advocating here for a works-based salvation as some might would like to claim. No, James is advocating for a salvation of faith that has impacted what we do. He's advocating that our faith in Christ then transforms our lives and impacts everything we do. In fact, we'll see in a few moments that faith works together with our works. One other thing before we move to the next point, and that is in verse 16. I want to take you through a technical aspect of this verse in verse 16. He says, in one of you, circle you, that pronoun, that's a, a third singular, that's an individual. That's one person. One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you, circle that pronoun, you, that's second plural. That's indicative of the entire congregation. It's more than just one person. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. One person voices on behalf of the congregation, he's basically here, saying, be warm, be filled, go in peace. And then the remainder of the congregation simply agrees and does not take action to meet the need. And so by implication of the one, they are all guilty. But this goes beyond just social justice. Right? I mean, at its deepest level, at the root level here, at the foundation, it is an issue of one's faith. And has the Lord Jesus Christ transformed us? And if He has, has, yet we are not exercising those good deeds that even Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that we would walk in those good works which God has prepared for us beforehand, then it's an issue for us of obedience, faithful obedience to God's prompting and leading in our lives. And I think that we need to heed the warning here that if we are not careful, we can become a people who are so focused on doctrinal accuracy, yet we can fail miserably in living the gospel faithfully. And so I think one of the challenges that we need to see here, church, is that we, we ought to be a people who are consumed with the good works of Christ that God himself has prepared for us to walk in. Because it's biblical. It's biblical that we, we would be God, the hands and feet, that, that we would be the ones who, who impact and God would use us. That God would use us. You see, when there's a need... The issue is not whether God will provide someone to meet the need. The issue is whether or not the one or the multiple ones through which God wants to provide will be obedient to God's prompting. This passage is about faith. Where's our faith? 1 John 3.17, John says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how? How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know, as we consider going to St. Vincent's to Paul, St. Vincent to Paul's uh, tomorrow evening, uh, I laugh. I called Melissa this time to ask. For those of you that after the last challenge to go to St. Vincent to Paul, you called and wanted to go, but there was no room on the team to go. Sorry. 
I called and asked this time there's room. Uh, if anybody feels like they want and are, are challenged to go and to, to participate in that ministry at the, the men's shelter and, and minister to, to some people that are in great need, that opportunity is wide open. And that's a consistent ministry. And so if that's not something you've participated in, I want to encourage you and challenge you to be participatory in that. Just take a moment as well just to, to speak and to maybe put in a, a plug somewhat for, for home groups and, and how we are trying as a, as a church to do ministry and do this, uh, this hands-on ministry through our home groups in the community and really to make a difference in the lives of people and to be involved in, in a, a group where, uh, where, where they check on you and you check on them and there's community and there's fellowship there and there's growth in Christ as we minister to one another and meet, meet one another's needs. Um, and so this, this intra-community ministry, it goes beyond just the walls of the church here. It, it goes beyond that and it goes into the lives of others. Saving faith is a faith. Saving faith leads us to action. Saving faith leads to action. In verse 17, he says a startling statement where he escalates his language from what use is that being useless to this faith is dead. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. One commentator writes this about this faith. He says, having form, this faith lacks force. In other words, it has a form, but it has no power behind it. Outwardly inoperative, because inwardly it's dead. Faith without works, James says, is a dead faith. It's pretty simple. When Christ births life within us, there is a change, there is a transformation. Now there may be seasons that we walk through where we are disobedient and we are not gauging in good works for the glory of God and His kingdom, but the Christian cannot continue in that way. Secondly, this morning I want us to see that saving faith, not only is saving faith lead to action, saving faith distinguishes true disciples. Saving faith distinguishes true disciples. Look in verse 18. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. There is an objector here in verse 18. And the objector says, Well, you have faith, I have works. And James replies, Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. For James knows that a person cannot show their faith without works. One cannot show their faith without pointing to the works that it has caused and generated in their lives and through their lives. And so this faith that James is speaking about that he challenges us on. It is a faith that is to be lived out through obedience in life and interaction with others. But this faith that is being claimed, 
by some in the congregation that does not result in works is nothing more than an intellectual belief. That's the point of what he says in verse 19, which is a hard word to hear. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is dead? Or useless, I'm sorry. This verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well, the demons also believe and shudder. For James, works are not the means of salvation, but the expression of salvation. A person is not saved because he has done a good work. Instead, a person has done a good work because he or she is saved. And the mercy and the grace that God has, has prompted uh, in their lives or has poured out in their lives has prompted a work in their heart and in their mind so that they obediently submit to the Holy Spirit. Yet this one who says they have faith, James points to the belief of demons. And basically is asking the question, what is the difference between your faith and the faith of demons, right? I mean, that's what he's asking here in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In fact, the irony is he just kind of pushes it a little bit further and says, you believe that God is one? So do the demons. They know that God is one. They know Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They know the Trinity. They know God is one. They believe it. But not only do they believe it, they believe it in such a way that it manifests itself in a fear and a trembling where they shudder before God. And the, 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 the reality then becomes for the one there with claiming to have faith is that they don't even shudder in the presence of God. Their faith is weak. Perhaps their faith is subpar to the faith of demons. There is an intellectual assent that God is one. But there is no practical living out of this faith. In fact, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, and they cried out saying, that's the demons saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before time? Right? And then in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with, you, with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, do not torment me. Here's the demon world professing faith in Christ. The reality that James is pointing out, I think is even their faith manifested itself in some action. But this faith that some in the congregation would claim to have, they have this faith in God, they, and they affirm that God is one. They, they affirm maybe that, that Jesus came down in the incarnation, God himself stepped down. I mean, the demons encountered Jesus. They would affirm that. But faith must go beyond intellectual. It must impact the moral. It must go beyond our intellect, and it must impact the things that we do every day. And that's what James is challenging the church in here. It's not enough to say that they believe. 
It's not enough to say that they have faith. What needs to happen for the foolish fellow in verse 20 is that he needs to have a change in his life where his intellect matches his action. Her intellect matches her action. And there is a change that occurs at that point. And so James' challenge here is that a person's faith would be fleshed out in their daily life and the things that they do, the places we go, real practically. What's that look like for you and I? This word for foolish fellow here, it's the linguistic cousin of that word fool that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, raka, and that word moron, which we see in 1 Corinthians, which we get our word from moron, right? It's this moral and intellectual foolishness that misses it. And so how does that flesh out for you and I? Intellectual and moral error, it places us in the same camp as the demons regarding our faith. We'd be wise to recognize that faith in Christ calls for, it leads us to action, it it distinguishes our lives because we are engaged and we are wanting to spread the glory of Christ. And it, it, it affects everything we do. Real practically, it, it affects everything we do, does it not? Knowing Jesus Christ, we are vessels of mercy. It affects the way we speak, so speak and so act as though you are under the law of liberty, he says in chapter 2, verse 12. The things we say, the things we do are all affected and impacted by this life transformation Saving faith distinguishes true disciples, does it not? We're different than the demon faith who just affirms intellectually that God exists but has no obedience in his or her life. The believer has obedience, walks in obedience to God. The believer, the true disciple is... The one who has saving faith is is walking and exercising faithfully. That may mean going on mission trips. That may mean uh, reaching out to neighbors in the community is what we want to try to do as we um, as we spread out in our in our home groups and meet needs and impact people where they are with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe that Jesus Christ saves. He has he offers us a hope. He gives us hope. In eternal salvation, we believe that we will not be satisfied unless we are walking in Christ. We believe that Jesus is is the answer. He is eternal salvation. And so because of this, we, we are to let our deeds be shown forth. Thirdly, this morning, I, I want us to see that saving faith matures. Through works. Maybe a little bit of an odd statement there. Saving faith matures through works. I want to show you where that comes from here in verses 21 through 26. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And then look in verse 25, the same thing. Was 
Uh, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? This wording, justified, it certainly causes us some friction when we read in, in Romans. Romans chapter 4, if you want to turn there briefly, quickly. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, 1 through 4. <clears throat> what then shall we say? That Abraham... I'll give you a moment. The page is turning. Romans 4, 1. What then shall we say that... Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he, was, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as Righteousness. You see the apparent contradiction between what Paul says here in Romans and what James is claiming in chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Well, let me explain the discrepancy. And really, there is no discrepancy at all when we come to this passage. There really is no difficulty that we... I mean, it, it's somewhat difficult, but we wrestle with it, and it becomes clear. And in, verse, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is speaking about an initiatory justification, being initially coming to God. And in that initial time of coming to God, we are, we are justified, and that is by faith, and that is because of the grace of God. And so in Romans, Paul is talking about that justification that happens when we first come to God in Christ. It's initiatory. Paul is speaking about working under the law. And so he's making this claim. A man cannot work under the law and keep the law. A woman cannot keep the law in order to earn their own salvation. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. And to that point, James makes the same argument here in chapter 2. In verse 9 and 10. So James 2, 9 and 10. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Right? Even verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Not the law as Paul is talking about the law. And so this justification that the Apostle Paul and that we'll talk about and, and walk through as we walk through Romans, this justification that we see in the book of Romans and, and in Paul's writings is a, is a pre-conversion work. It's a work or a work that happens at conversion. But the justification that 
James is speaking of, it is a justification that looks at the final judgment. It is eschatological. Paul is speaking about pre-conversion works. James is speaking about engaging in post-conversion works. Paul is speaking about what leads up to salvation, namely the grace of God by faith in Christ. James is speaking about what happens after salvation, namely the result of faith in Christ leads to transformed living and works that are done and fleshed out for God's glory. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that. Ephesians 2.10, go back and look at what he says, that these were good works created beforehand that we would walk in them. And so this justified that James is speaking about for Abraham and for Rahab, it was at the final judgment or will be at the final judgment that they will be justified according to their works because their works matched their faith. But then in 24, verse 24, he says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so this discrepancy needs to go a little bit further that we would understand what does he mean by faith alone? Well, what what has James been talking about the whole passage? A faith that is distinctly different than the one that was being claimed. And the one that was being claimed was a faith that said, I believe in God, yet there was no action, right? So faith alone. I believe in God. I believe that He is one. I believe that He is Lord, But there's no action that backs it up. And so what James is saying is that this faith alone that you're claiming, it is not a faith that leads to salvation. This is a faith that is like the faith of demons. Basically, it's an intellectual faith, but it's not a transformed, saving faith. And so as James is speaking and and, and as James is challenging in verse 24, see, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What James is really speaking about is this faith that is accompanied by works and that proves one's faith. If we understand it that way, this is not a contradiction to anything else in Scripture. But there's one other aspect that we need to see regarding saving faith, how it matures through this process of works. We see it in verse 22. Verse 22, he says, You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Now, I want you to write the word synergy. Synergy. The Greek word here for working together is synerge. It's where we get our word synergy from. And the definition of synergy is, is when you have two parts individually that together they equal a greater sum as a whole than as individual parts. And this is what James is saying here in verse 22 and in this passage. You see that faith was working together, working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected this faith that is happening and working together with the believers works get this works let me start with faith faith has an impact 
in our lives. And it touches everything we do. And our works are then strengthened and dictated and driven by spirit, by Holy Spirit of God, but driven. That's our faith impacting our works. But then he also says something about works, and that is that works have an effect on our faith because it's in works that our faith has its proving ground. And so what he says is something very interesting. Turn all the way back to chapter 1, verse 4. You'll remember this process. The first sermon in James considered all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete. This is mature so that you as a believer may grow into maturity. What James is claiming here in chapter 2 is the same thing as perfect and complete. This is a maturity. Literally, the word there is maturity. You see that faith was working together as a result of the works. Faith was matured. Faith was perfected, completed. And the result is, in our lives, as we exercise our faith, our faith impacts our works, the things that we do but our works also impact our faith and bring about the maturity of our faith. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2, right? You know it. Philippians chapter 2. No, I can't say it. For Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? This is God at work in the life of the believer and faith working it out. And we ought to do all of this work and faith, exercising work and faith together that we might grow in the glory of Christ, that we might be pleasing in the presence of of God our Savior. So this working together of faith and works, that is our faith impacts our works, producing a desire for obedience to God's leading, our works impacting our faith. Faith being unfinished without works. Our works complete. Our works bring our faith to maturity so are we talking about a workspace salvation this morning? Absolutely not. Not a workspace salvation. We're talking about a salvation that comes by grace through faith. We're talking about a salvation that transforms our lives and impacts the very things that we do. And this faith is being fleshed out and worked out in deeds, in good works that God has already created and prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We walk in these good works and these good works mature and finish. They complete our faith. So at that day of judgment, the hoped for salvation is not missed intellectually or morally. The hoped for salvation is realized and when when we hear the words, well done thy good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. 
What a glorious day that will be. The challenge for us is to walk by faith. The challenge for us is to heed the gospel call. The challenge for us is to listen, to be submissive to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Brothers and sisters, if we're too busy to engage in the the good deeds that God has prepared that we would walk in before Him, if we're too busy to engage in the good works that God has prepared, then we need to rid our lives of some things. I know that we may not like to hear that, but we need to simplify our lives. Even if it's good things, we need to simplify our lives so that we might do that which God is calling us to do so that we won't be too busy to engage in those good works. Martin Luther, a tremendous theologian, thought of James' epistle as a weak and um, kind of a straw letter. He was reluctant toward it, and it was largely due because of this particular passage that we're looking at this morning. But in Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans, I think it's ironic how he writes what seems to be the sentiment of James' theme, even here. He says this, Oh, it is a living... Luther says this about Romans. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it already has... it. It has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Saving faith is a serving faith that leads to action. It distinguishes the true disciple and it matures our faith in the process. The challenge this morning is twofold. Number one, maybe you've realized this morning that you don't have true saving faith and that's the first step. It's to submit and to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel message is clear. It is that we must confess our sin and repent before the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him as Lord and Savior over our lives and surrendering to Him. If that's what God is working in your life this morning, I want to encourage you to come forward and let me pray with you and talk to you more about that. If you have questions about what it means to have a saving faith, you can come and speak with me this morning or you can write that even on the card and leave that at a table or give it to one of our members and they'll in turn share with you or even give it to me, one of our elders. Um, and then secondly, the, the challenge this morning is for the church, as believers in Christ, seeing this challenge of a saving faith being a serving faith. Let me ask you this morning, how are you serving? How are you engaging in good works? How are you engaging in these works that mature and complete our salvation? This is something for us to come before the Lord with transparently asking Him maybe to show us some areas that we need to engage in. Maybe there's some things that we need to physically do to help others out.
Maybe there are opportunities we have missed that God will graciously bring to mind and by his mercy forgive us and help us to not be so callous in the future. I want to challenge you in this way this morning. And if you need to confess and pray or just come before even for some other thing that the Lord has laid upon your heart and just kneel down this morning these steps, please come and confess that before the Lord as a sign of uh, just your commitment to him. But I'm going to close this in prayer and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and um, and play as we just have a time of reflection and even invitation. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning humbly in the most humble way that we can. Thanking you, Father, for your word. Realizing that your standard of holiness is unattainable outside of Christ. And Lord, that we have all fallen short. But Lord, we confess our need for you and we confess, Father, that uh, there are areas even that we have missed in our service to one another and in our service to others. Lord, may it not be said of us that we would be like that church that just simply says trite things to bless somebody, but really we do nothing to meet the need. Let us not be them, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to be a people who continue to walk and to serve you, continue to walk obediently, Lord, that we would be a people uh, who faithfully live out your word. So, Lord, we pray for opportunities to exercise our faith. I pray that you would give us those opportunities. And, Lord, give us eyes to see, even ears to hear. For, Lord, your word says Jesus himself prayed, the fields are wide unto harvest. The laborers are few. And so, Lord, we come to you as Lord of the harvest and we pray for laborers. We pray for those who would be challenged to go out into the community and meet needs of people and exercise our faith in the gospel. So, Lord, strengthen us for this day. Strengthen us for your calling. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?